Christianity came to the church in Ephesus very early, probably prior to Paul's second and third missionary journeys, though it was certainly through the ministry of Paul that the church became deeply rooted. Following his first recorded visit around 52 AD, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in charge of the Ephesian church. Apollo, who had been converted through John the Baptist, became one of Priscilla and Aquila's most outstanding and persuasive disciples. Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey and spent more time there than any other place in his travels. At that point, Paul left Timothy in charge of this church, addressing his personal letters to Timothy during Timothy's years there as the overseer in Paul's behalf. Ephesus had an incredible advantage of leadership. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollo, Timothy, serving as leaders during the very early years of its life. Following the death of Paul, the Apostle John became the overseer of all the churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Remember, this was the expansion of the church out of what had been always located in Israel and Jerusalem most particularly. Most likely, the Apostle John spent a great deal of time with each of the seven congregations he served, but most particularly this congregation at Ephesus. Ephesus was not the capital of Asia Minor, but it was its most prominent city. In John's day, it's estimated that more than 250,000 people lived in the city of Ephesus. Note the ruins of the large shopping plaza known as the Agora. Today it's known as West Farms Mall. (laughs) It's not as pretty as that, but it's about the same size and a bit more functional than the ruins are in Ephesus. Ephesus was a wealthy city because it was the converging point for three major trade routes. When people left Rome to go east towards Asia, they first came to Ephesus. When people returned from the east, their last stop prior to Rome was Ephesus. A major sporting event, the Asian Games, were held in Ephesus. These games required a stadium with more than 25,000 seats for spectators. As is usually the case, the people on the field were in need of rest. The people in the stands were in need of exercise. That's how it works in all stadiums. Today you'll note it especially. 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest and thousands and thousands of people in the stands and sitting on their sofas at home desperately in need of exercise. We've got to work that out somehow. <laughs> Ephesus also boasted a magnificent amphitheater that hosted concerts and traveling Greek dramas as well as many political and civic events. It's amazing when you sit in that amphitheater, someone at the bottom can be talking like me right now, away from the microphone, away from the microphone. And you can hear it at the very top of the amphitheater. up. Naturally, they built it on a hillside. Additionally, Ephesus was also home for one of the finest libraries in the world, 
and the front facade of that library is exposed completely to this day, and you can visit it. Around 95 AD, we find John has been banished to the Greek island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea for refusing to worship the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian took his divinity as emperor of Rome seriously. He began a very bitter campaign against all who would not worship him. All announcements and proclamations had to begin with this phrase, Our Lord and God, Domitian, commands. Wow. When addressing him, he demanded to be called Lord and God, and his banner that flew wherever he was, Caesar is Lord. Instead of making John another martyr to be revered, Domitian sent him away to die on the isolation of Patmos. The shoreline of Patmos became John's prison walls. A cave on Patmos became his home. Yet it was while he was banished, isolated, and disconnected that God came to John with the Revelation, the last book of our Bible. John was helpless, but he was not hopeless. He remained open to God in his life, no matter his circumstances. It is from this cave on Patmos that the Lord reveals to John what each church in Asia Minor must overcome in order to stay connected and vital in their relationship with God. May the overcoming words for today do that work in God for us, helping us to become overcomers. We may not be one of the seven churches of the Revelation, but we are a church that belongs to God and he has a word for us today. Pray with me as we begin to find it. Holy Father, help us to clearly hear your Holy Spirit. We know he will lead us to Jesus. And in turn, Jesus always leads us to you. If we have disconnected at any point in our relationship, may that disconnect today be identified and repaired. If our faith in your provision has grown weak, we pray for renewed strength and resolve. If our love for you and your way has grown cold, we pray for fresh passion to get close and revive desire to live out the love you give us. Lord, we do have ears. Help us to truly hear and to truly listen and to do what your Spirit is saying to us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. First thing in the text, Jesus identifies himself. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He holds the life. He holds the vitality. He holds the essence of the church, not just these seven, but all churches in his right hand. And he walks with the church, with its members. There's a sense of intimacy that he's declaring. Here's the point of his identification. Jesus holds the church. The church is in good hands. Someone else in our day took that motto, but Jesus started it. The church is in good hands. Jesus is actively involved in the church. He is walking among the people of the church, not just in the location of the church, 
but in the location of the people who are his followers, his believers. And Jesus is present with the church. He is intimate. He is personal. He's not a set of rules and regulations. He's not a set set of doctrines to follow. It's a relationship we have with the living God who sent his son for that relationship to exist. In the same way that God sought out Adam and Eve in the garden and came down and looked for them after they fell, so God continues to come down in the life of his son and by the Holy Spirit to seek out a relationship with the people of his making. Jesus identifies himself. He goes on to praise the church in Revelation 2, 2 to 3. I know your deeds. You work hard and your your perseverance. You know that I cannot tolerate wicked men that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. They're hardworking as a church. They persevere under pressure. It's mentioned twice. That really matters to him. They have not compromised the church. They have not tolerated those who practice wicked behaviors. They test leadership. They've identified false apostles. They've endured hardship. They've not given up on their faith nor their hope. And they hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. We're not going to look at that today. We'll look at that at Pergamum, where it's mentioned more profoundly, the work of the Nicolaitans. But understand, this church also had to deal with some work going on with the Nicolaitans. But note this, it doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. It doesn't say that. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. There is a difference, a huge difference, which will be unwrapped in a few moments. The bottom line, Jesus is genuinely satisfied that under pressure both subtle pressure and in-your-face pressure, that the Ephesian church has neither given in nor given up. They have persevered. He goes on, though, to identify a problem that needs to be overcome. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. The early passion for God And the people God loves had waned in the life of this congregation. The zing, the oomph, the pizzazz had gone out of their personal and corporate life. They had become distracted. What happened? What happened in Ephesus? My take on this is that their emphasis on truth had distracted them from their love. That's interesting. Their intolerance for wickedness, their eagerness in finding the truth about people, distracted them from loving people. They'd become judges. They'd become evaluators of those around them. In turn, when we love people less, we love God less. Hang on to that. There'll be more of that coming. Jesus gives us many examples of how love is lived out and not to be distracted, even by truth. Listen to this one from John chapter 8. Early in the morning, Jesus returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, placing her in the center of the group. They said to Jesus, Teacher, 
This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him. So he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. What an example. Have we really heard that story? Is it really the practice of our life? Jesus did not get distracted by truth. He stayed on point with love. But he spoke the truth, too. The Pharisees, based on truth from the Torah, wanted this sinful woman executed. Anything short of her execution would condone her sinful and unacceptable behavior. How many times have we heard that? If I love my child who's wayward and they're doing this, 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 and this, if I reach out to them, I'm only condoning what they're doing, which is wrong. Where do we get that thinking from? Show me Bible on doing that right. Jesus showed love to the woman. He also showed that love and forgiveness is not condoning of ungodly behavior. He didn't say, oh, it's okay. You can have any man you want anytime you want. He didn't say that to her. He challenged her to not sin anymore. With a very broad brush stroke, Jesus had said the same thing to one of the Pharisees much earlier in John's Gospel. Listen to what John writes about Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3. You know this first verse extremely well. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. You notice what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his son, that everyone, or in the old translation, whosoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. But hear the next verse, which is hardly ever read. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Where do we get this notion that we have a better way than Jesus to deal with people in the world? Of all the New Testament authors, the Apostle John is the most precise. Love for God and love for people or neighbors go hand in hand. One without the other is neither. John is very clear in his letters that love for God is validated by love for others, calling them neighbor 
And when Jesus was asked, well, who is my neighbor? He just tells the story of someone who acted in a neighborly way. He answered the better question, not the one that was asked. How do I be a neighbor? Is the question he answers in telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Basically, you cannot love one without the other. And when one's love is diminished in either, it is diminished in the other as well. Jesus made it clear. Love for God and love for neighbor go hand in hand as the greatest commandments. Anything that distracts from that, from that God love and neighbor love, robs us of God's will and purpose for living. For the Ephesians, I believe that the distraction of their life as a congregation was truth. Truth is a good thing, except when it leads to a diminishing of love. Technically, listen to this now carefully, technically, their orthodoxy had smothered their love. That's expensive orthodoxy. A couple of examples in my life of orthodoxy smothering love. I served for several years on a school board in Minneapolis of our covenant school there, Minnehaha Academy. A board member, I was the vice chair of that board for most of my years. A board member at Minnehaha wanted to allow only Christian kids from Christian families to attend, seeking a purity of environment so that Christians would be safe to be Christian and not distracted by any non-Christian kids or attempting Christian kids who come from non-Christian families. Absolutely not. That's not covenant. That's not our understanding of scripture. That school had been created as a mission station itself so that anyone would be able to come there if they made application to come. But the Christian faith would be taught, it'd be a part of every class, there'd be prayers before things and after things and during things. An opportunity to come to know Jesus was there. And now to say only Christians can come, only if they pass a purity test, and only if their family passes it well, I am sorry. The answer to that request is no. We were diminishing the opportunity to love and bless with the gospel because we were seeking for a purity that is unrealistic and unhelpful and against what we believe about how we relate to the world. About 20 years ago, when I was serving down in Easton, Connecticut, I got a call from a pastor I did not know from Fairfield County and was very interested in having me join them in their Veritas group. Well, tell me about your Veritas group. Well, we gathered together to make very clear what the boundaries are for living as Christians, the sets of rules we need to follow, the things we need to avoid in our lives. I said, so veritas, I understand that means truthfulness. So it's about truth. And he said, yes, it's about truth. We want the truth to be known. We want the truth to be expressed. We want the truth to be expressed profoundly. I said, that's not a bad thing. However, I look at the end of 1 Corinthians 13 and I get a little concerned. Because it says three things exist that remain. Three things that will last. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. Now, if that's the truth you're talking about, I'm all in. 
If it's truth in addition to that, if it's truth above that, if it's truth that holds people accountable but doesn't bless them with the love and the open arms, the embrace, the community that can care for people and help them live into the truth because they live into Jesus and allow the love of the Spirit to permeate their lives, I don't want any part of that. Well, he was taken aback. I did not join the group. It doesn't exist anymore. And I'm thankful because while I love truth, I love to teach the truth of the scripture. The truth is if love is diminished, we have violated the basic truth of all the teaching of the Bible. And most particularly what Jesus came to bring to it because it got confused in the Old Testament by people who had that same notion about truth, but not the love of God. Listen to what James writes in his letter. Your calling is to fulfill the royal law of love as given to us in the scripture. You must love and value your neighbor as you love and value yourself. For keeping this law is the noble way to live. But when you show prejudice, you commit sin and you violate this royal law of love. So here's the question. When it comes to our life as followers of Jesus... Distractions are deadly. What in your life? What in my life? What in our life together is distracting us from loving God back and from loving others as God has chosen to love us? Do we have an expensive orthodoxy? Are we missing the mark of real truth in Scripture? It's possible. I have to examine my life. I encourage you to do likewise. Remember Jesus said for us to imitate him. Listen, John 13, 34. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus gives a way to overcome. Revelation 2.5, part A. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Three points. Uh, pastor's gold mine, something with three points. Number one, remember the height. To have lost the priority of love means that you once had the priority of love. The first step to recover is to remember that first love and how it really was. Some needed to remember the depths from which they had been raised out of. Some needed to remember the heights of deception and self-importance from which they had been brought down to reality. All needed to remember the height of passion for Jesus Christ and for loving people that had marked the early days of their new faith. Remember the height. Point two, repent of the fall. Remembering is a good beginning. But once remembered, we must turn around and go back to that priority of love. Repentance is both a turning around and a proceeding. In this case, the original love for God and for people as a priority. So repent after you remember. And then repeat. Repeat what you did at first. Love. Make your discipline a love discipline. For Ephesus, it's a matter of love being a priority above their orthodoxy. 
The judgment day question has already been revealed. We did it in our last series. It's not a question about our theology. Jesus is not going to come before us and say, well, what did you believe? What did you believe about that? What did you believe about that? He doesn't do that. What does he say? He separates. If you took care of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you took care of me. If you didn't take care of the least of these, you didn't take care of me. It's behavioral. It's love-driven. It's passionate. It's caring for people, whoever they are. It doesn't matter who they are. It matters that Christ's love works through us for them. That's what this church needed to overcome. Do we? In the book of Revelation, the same tree of life is the centerpiece of heaven. And Jesus reveals a reward to those who overcome. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a gift reserved for those who enter heaven. It's the nourishment for eternity. That's what happens if we are dispensers, ambassadors, projectors of love. To be known by, as Christians by how we love is the key. Conclusion. Are we listening? Do we really hear? God's extreme love for us is unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable. And it's meant to be a target for our love with one another. Not just one another in this place, but one another in this place. Jesus calls us to overcome the distractions that rob God of first place in our heart. Jesus also calls us to overcome the distractions that rob love for people as a first priority in our lives. So the application, remember. Remember the early days of your faith. Trust what the Bible says. Really trust it. Do what the Bible says. That validates that you trust it. Loving God and loving people is the priority. Number one, never to be less. Repent of the distractions. The busyness we have for God, for his church, but not time with God in devotion and prayer and worship. Spouse, when priority for spouse takes precedence over God, love for both diminishes. And I gave a sermon many years ago now in Fairfield County, the church I served down there. I knew it better than I know this county and you all, but I know you relatively well after a year. The idolatry of children. Where children take the priority over everything. What they need We'll dispense with church because we're taking care of our kids. We've got to give them opportunity. My friends, when we idolatrize, idolatize, I can't even say it. It's so bad. Our children, we don't do them any good. We don't do them any service. We're not showing love for God nor love for them when we do that. I'm not saying withhold things from them. I'm saying make sure your priorities are in the right order. Love for them means attaching them to the love of God for them. The love of church for them. We need to repent. And repeat. 
Trusting again what the Bible says. Doing what the Bible says. Loving God and loving people as our number one priority over everything else. As we do that, the walls will not be big enough to hold what's needed to the care of people in our community. And it will be the revival that some of us have been praying about for a long time in New England. Because the priority of God will become our priority. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the help of scriptures that call us back to you. First, foremost, always. Thank you for ears that help us hear what your spirit says to the church to the church in Ephesus and to the church in Berlin. Forgive us the distractions that so easily rob us of your love in us and through us to others. Revive and renew us in your love. Thank you, Father, for not letting go of us, but for holding us in your hand, even when our priorities get out of whack. Thank you, Lord, for a love that will not let us go. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.